This is a Federal News Network podcast. The security clearance process can make it difficult to move personnel from one agency to another. That's especially true for people who need the highest levels of clearance. Lie detector requirements and other issues can bog down an application for months. The Intelligence and National Security Alliance has some new suggestions, though, for how to make it faster and easier. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with INSA Vice President for Policy, Larry Hanauer. An effective personnel mobility process is really important for both government and industry in the in the cleared space. If the security clearance process takes too long or if it deters too many applicants, then contractors can't provide enough people or the right people to support their government sponsors. Now, the government's made great strides in streamlining the clearance process in recent years, particularly through the, the ongoing Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative, but a lot of work still remains to be done. Particularly for contractors, personnel mobility is really critical uh, because contractors support multiple projects at multiple agencies simultaneously. Now, it can take anywhere from a few days to several months and sometimes even more just to get an agency to accept as valid a clearance granted by another agency. And so that means that contractors just can't get to work on a new contract in a timely manner, and that hinders companies' ability to perform the work they've been contracted to do. So what INSA wanted to do was to identify the challenges to moving contractors between agencies. And the paper that we wrote uh, provides some really concrete examples of how agencies' processes are bureaucratic and inefficient so that we could propose ways to get contractors to work faster and more effectively. I should note, too, the challenge affects government employees as well, but government employees don't rotate between agencies very often. They might do that every couple of years if they change assignments or that kind of thing. But because contractors support several agencies at the same time, they're constantly moving between agencies and need to access different agencies' systems and facilities. And so the the delays in personnel mobility, the delays in getting their clearances approved to make that move are are really um, a significant hindrance to their work. Got it. So now that we've kind of set the table here, Larry, what were some of the big takeaways from the report? You had some good recommendations and findings in there. What are some of the top ones people need to know about? So one big one is that um, the Defense Department needs to eliminate component-specific reciprocity requirements. So each of DOD's 43 components, which include the military services and the defense agencies, have different processes for granting SCI access even after clearance eligibility is documented in DOD's system of record. And these requirements aren't based on any written guidelines. There's no formal instruction that they that they have to have these different practices. They're based just on longstanding practice, you know, the way things have always been done. But what they end up doing is they end up delaying a contractor's ability to get to work by about two to five weeks, as Greg said, while offering really no security benefits whatsoever. So, so that key recommendation is consistency across the Defense Department's uh, 43 organizations. Um, Second, DOD needs to let contractor firms in-brief their personnel at the SCI level, which is already allowed for top secret access. Um, so right now, a contractor can can indoctrinate their their employees at the top secret level and send them off to work or, or start putting them on t- to work on a contract. But they can't do that at the SCI level. It takes an additional briefing by the government agency. And that just adds an additional several weeks that delays contractors from starting work. So since companies are already able to in-brief their people at the collateral top secret level, we recommend they be given the authority to do the in-briefs at the SCI level as well. Third, we recommend the DOD adjudicate a contractor's SCI access access. At the same time, they adjudicate the contractor's collateral top secret access. 
the adjudicative standards are virtually the same. Uh, but right now, if you get a top secret clearance, the government adjudicates your access. And then if you later on need access to SCI information, they have to re-adjudicate your access to the same standards a second time. And that's just duplicative and it wastes time. So we recommend that contractors get their SCI access adjudicated at the same time as their collateral clearance. So that way, if and when they need SCI access, it's, it's already the, the, the approvals are already granted. Uh, the fourth recommendation is that agencies that require full scope or lifestyle polygraphs should allow contractors to begin working if they already have a valid counterintelligence polygraph. The full scope polys can take anywhere from a few months to over a year to schedule, and so they, they just create critical delays in getting people to work. And there's already a shortage of people with polygraphs, and which which creates real problems in getting the work done. And since the counterintelligence polygraphs really address the most critical security issues, they really should be adequate to allow someone to start working while the agencies work on getting the, the full scope lifestyle polygraph scheduled. The fifth recommendation we made is that industry get access to intelligence communities, uh, the intelligence communities clearance repositories so they can assess whether their personnel are likely to be approved for a clearance. That way you don't waste months uh, processing someone who, you know, as the government just isn't going to get through the process. Uh, and then sixth, and maybe this is even the most important one, we recommend that ODNI and the Defense Department appoint a single official or a single team that can implement standardized personnel mobility procedures across the government. There's really no reason for, for differing procedures from agency to agency to agency or even within agencies. So, um, so promoting consistency and standardization across the government would really make the process a lot simpler and more efficient for both government and industry. All right, Larry, the streamlining tier five adjudications to the highest level possible to kind of improve that mobility, the, the SEI level, not just top secret at the start when you bring someone in. Can you talk a little bit more about why that doesn't happen today? Right. I mean, the, the approach now is that agencies will adjudicate a person's clearance to the level that's been requested. So if you're being put on a contract or offered a job that requires you to have a top secret collateral clearance, then the government will adjudicate you for a top secret clearance. Um, and that's it. Um, SCI access as, as well as other accesses are granted on a need to know basis. So if you're brought on board and you don't need to know SCI level uh, information um, when you're hired, they won't adjudicate you for SCI access. But if you later on need that SCI access for, let's say, a new contract or, or a new job, and, and that's quite common, then you got to start from scratch and get your clearance adjudicated all over again, even though the adjudicative standards, as I mentioned, are, are virtually the same for collateral top secret and for SCI. So what that means is that if a firm has to wait for an individual to go through the adjudicative process again and have their, their accesses re-adjudicated so they can be given SCI, that just creates a delay. Now, we're not recommending that people be given access to sensitive information that they don't have a need to know. What we're recommending is just that the adjudication for both collateral top secret and SCI access be done at the same time so that if later on a person has has a need to access SCI information for a contract, then they've already been adjudicated to have that access. That's INSA Vice President for Policy Larry Hanauer speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service 
beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, 
my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.